Hi, I'm Vicky, a final year medical student at Bristol University. Welcome to this e-tutorial on the top 10 most dangerous drugs you're likely to prescribe as an F1. Over the next 20 minutes, I'll take you through the individual drugs and their drug class, looking at important interactions, contraindications and side effects. I'll also point out some of the common pitfalls that you may experience as a doctor or as part of your prescribing safety assessment. Hopefully by the end of this, you'll feel more confident about these key medications on the wards and in your exam. So let's start with warfarin. This is an anticoagulant, a vitamin K antagonist, that is regularly prescribed after an embolic event such as a stroke or a PE. It's also used prophylactically for AF and after the insertion of prosthetic heart valves. In terms of side effects and contraindications, many of these relate to bleeding, either bleeding as part of a disease, such as a peptic ulcer or a hemorrhagic stroke, or iatrogenically, such as following surgery. Apart from the obvious risks of causing bleeding, it also has a lot of interactions. This is due to its use of the cytochrome P450 enzyme pathway, which means that you need to be very careful not only when you prescribe it, but if you're prescribing anything else for a patient who's already taking it. Always look in the BNF and talk to senior colleagues and pharmacists when prescribing with or for warfarin. It's worth briefly talking about the interactions in the cytochrome P450 pathway. A key distinction to make is between those drugs that induce versus those drugs that inhibit it. Inducers induce the enzyme activity, thus decreasing warfarin's concentration, which in turn decreases INR. This will increase the chances of a thrombus. Inhibitors inhibit the enzyme that breaks down warfarin and thus causes more of it to remain in the bloodstream. This increases INR and decreases the chance of thrombus, but, importantly, may increase the chance of hemorrhage. Interactions aside, it's useful to remember that, at least in the short term before you can review your prescriptions with someone more senior, it's more likely that you're going to cause damage by over-prescribing anticoagulants, and thus causing a hemorrhage, rather than under-prescribing them, increasing the chance of a thrombus. Similarly, be aware that it can take 48 hours for a single dose to have an effect, so be careful when increasing the dose too quickly. Finally, patients in primary care are being moved off warfarin because of its interactions and narrow therapeutic window onto newer oral anticoagulants such as dabigatran, apixaban and rivaroxaban. While these are great for the patients in this setting, they can be a nightmare to manage in surgery as there's no effective way to reverse them. Always make sure you ask about these newer anticoagulants in any surgical pre-op check. Your anaesthetist will not be impressed if, you aren't dealt with, if these aren't dealt with before surgery starts. Moving on, temazepam is a short-acting benzodiazepine often used for insomnia. This means that the most likely situation you're going to be prescribing it in is in the early hours of the morning as an on-call shift for a patient who's unable to sleep. There's a fair amount of controversy about the use of sedation in hospitals. Some doctors believe that it's appropriate because a hospital environment with its interruptions, noise and light is a difficult place to settle in and that it's important for patients to get a restful sleep to aid recovery. Other doctors feel that it's overused and used as a shortcut to calm agitating patients when other non-medical measures would be more appropriate. If you do prescribe it, the typical dosage and route is 10 to 20 milligrams PO Nocte. The Crash Course Foundation Doctor's Guide gives the following guidance about when and when not to prescribe sedation on the wards. You should prescribe them when the patient is on an existing long-term sedative prescription for insomnia or anxiety. If the admission is prolonged, you can consider trying to gradually reduce the dose and wean the patient off the sedative. Also, if acute anxiety is causing symptoms such as chest pain or bone pain in metastatic malignancy, 
although do be aware to consider that the symptoms might be causing the anxiety rather than the other way around. Anxiolytics can be used as pre-medication before surgery or other invasive procedures, although typically you'd use a longer-acting benzodiazepine such as diazepam. Sometimes it's required if a patient is agitated and a danger to him or herself or others around them, and it can also be used to help a patient sleep if nothing else has worked. You should avoid prescribing a sleeping tablet when nothing else has been tried, however, such as milky drinks or low lighting and noise, or even a small amount of whiskey. Also be aware that it's likely to be ineffective in an agitated and wandering patient. It can actually cause confusion and ataxia, and even coma in the elderly, especially if they have renal or hepatic uh, impairment. So make sure that your initial dose is not too high. Finally, and this is less likely to be an issue in the acute environment, but dependence is a problem. So be aware of the length of time a patient has been on a benzodiazepine and what alternative options might be appropriate. Morphine, or morphine salts, is an opiate, a powerful painkiller. Doctors, especially junior doctors, can be a little hesitant to prescribe morphine, but it's important to remember that a primary duty you have as a doctor is to ensure that your patients aren't in pain. Familiarise yourself with the WHO pain ladder, but also find out what the local guidelines are for your hospital. Key things to remember when prescribing morphine is to assess the ability of the patient to metabolise the amount you give them. A typical loading dose is 5 to 10 milligrams IV, IM or subcutaneously. It's important to monitor how the patient responds to these, this in terms, both in terms of how their pain is and also for signs of respiratory depression. As well as the potentially life-threatening side effect of respiratory depression, there are several other important and common side effects to consider, including nausea and vomiting, particularly in initial stages, constipation and dry mouth. You should, always get, you should get used to always prescribing an antiemetic as PRN when prescribing morphine. Most commonly cyclozine is used, except in the elderly where metoclopramide might be more, more appropriate. Constipation is the most common side effect of chronic opioid use and should be minimised firstly by making sure that the patient is well hydrated and where possible encouraged to mobilise, but you are likely also to need to manage it medically with the use of stool softener and a stimulant laxative. Overdose of opioids needs to be managed with naloxone. Do be aware that the half-life of naloxone is shorter than for morphine and so, without careful monitoring, the naloxone may wear off before the morphine has and cause the patient to to deteriorate again. Aspirin is used both as an antiplatelet and as an antipyretic analgesic. It's classed as a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, an NSAID, and not only does it have a lot of interactions with other drugs, especially in relation to its antiplatelet activity, but it also has some serious side effects if used in the wrong type of patient. Aspirin is contraindicated in children under 16 years old, unless specifically indicated, such as in the treatment of Kawasaki disease, as it can cause a serious condition called Ray's syndrome. Its antiplatelet action means that it should be avoided in those with a, with a risk of deranged bleeding, such as haemophilia or a previous or active peptic ulceration. It should be noted that people may also have a hypersensitivity reaction to aspirin. This can be cutaneous, respiratory or a systemic type of reaction. The first two are more common. Respiratory reactions present within minutes to hours, much like an asthma attack, sometimes with rhinitis, conjunctival irritation and facial flushing. A cutaneous reaction presents with urticaria and or angioedema. A systemic reaction, rare but far more serious, causes hypertension, hypotension, laryngeal edema, generalised pruritus, tachypnea and ultimately loss of consciousness. 
In terms of more general side effects, these are similar to those found in other NSAIDs, such as gastrointestinal irritation, potentially leading to hemorrhage. Note that it can also be, this can be chronic and asymptomatic. Minimise this by advising the patient to always take the aspirin with food. Bronchospasm is another potential side effect which can be very dangerous and which is why aspirin should be avoided in asthmatics. Additionally, patients may develop confusion, tinnitus and skin reactions, so do look out for these, although they are rare. Aspirin is a key drug in the management of MI and ACS, where 300mg should be given PO-STAT and this should be followed by 75mg POOD thereafter as secondary prevention. It's also used for those suspected of having a TIA, again with an initial dose of 300mg. Overdose is possible with aspirin. It typically presents with tinnitus, hyperventilation, tachycardia and metabolic acidosis. Note that there is no specific antidote available for salicates, so principles of treatment include stabilising the patient, limiting absorption, enhancing elimination and correcting any metabolic abnormalities while also providing supportive care. Be aware that overdoses may be unintentional, such as in an elderly person who has taken more than they should over an extended period of time to combat pain. Methotrexate is an immune suppressant and thus is used by many different specialties, including oncology, gastroenterology, rheumatology and dermatology, to dampen down the immune response. As you'd expect, its biggest effect is on the body, which also means it has a wide range of side effects. There are over 50 listed across all the body systems in the BNF. There are also some absolute contraindications, such as pregnancy and breastfeeding. These adverse effects means that there's a requirement to both educate and constantly monitor the patient. If you're starting a patient on methotrexate, they will need to have a full blood count and renal and liver function tests, as well as a chest x-ray. Blood tests then need to be repeated every one to two weeks until the therapy is stabilised, after which they should be monitored every two to three months. It's also important to tell the patient to look out for symptoms of infection or bleeding, such as a sore throat, mouth ulcers or bruising, signs of liver toxicity, such as nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain or dark urine, and respiratory effects, such as shortness of breath. Finally, the patient needs to know that they should avoid aspirin and other NSAIDs such as ibuprofen as they affect the body's ability to excrete methotrexate and thus can cause methotrexate toxicity. In terms of dosages and routes, it's an oral medication and comes in 2.5mg and 10mg tablets. It's important to remember that methotrexate is almost always only a weekly dose. It's vital to emphasise this to the patient starting it, and it's also important to remember if you're the doctor prescribing the patient's continued medication in hospital, cross through the days on the chart when it shouldn't be given. Penicillin is a commonly used antibiotic, both in primary and secondary care. Despite growing concerns about antibiotic resistance, it's still used regularly and is effective in both primary and secondary care for bacterial infections in all systems. When prescribing penicillin and other antibiotics, it's vital that you follow local guidelines as common types of bacteria and their resistance will vary between regions and even between hospitals. Penicillin comes in many forms, not all of them with the word penicillin in their name. Penicillin G or benzyl penicillin sodium must be administered IV or IM and penicillin V, phenoxymethyl penicillin, can only be administered PO. Penicillin A is resistant penicillin such as flucloxacillin and there's broad spectrum penicillin such as amethicillin and amoxicillin. There are anti-pseudomonal penicillin such as piperacillin and finally the mycillin ams. 
penicillin allergy is relatively common, affecting between 1 and 10% of people who take it, although full-on anaphylactic reactions are rarer, fewer than 0.05% of treated patients. You should always find out what the patient means by allergic, as reactions can vary from mild, such as a slight rash, to life-threatening. Also remember that other antibiotics, such as coamoxiclav and tazacin, also contain penicillin. Finally, other beta-lactams and cephalosporins don't contain penicillin, but people allergic to penicillin may also be allergic to these. As well as the hypersensitivity reactions, another rare but serious toxic effect of the penicillins is encephalopathy due to cerebral irritation. Finally, diarrhoea is a common side effect and you should warn the patient about this. Corticosteroids like prednisolone have a wide-ranging immunosuppressive effect on the body and thus they have many effects and side effects. Prednisolone specifically has a primarily glucocorticoid function, but it also has some mineralocorticoid function as well. With regards to side effects, its glucocorticoid action causes impaired glycemic control, osteoporosis, proximal myopathy, psychoses, gastrointestinal bleeding and Cushing syndrome. Its mineralocorticoid adverse effects cause water and thus sodium retention, which can lead to hypertension. Additionally, the immunosuppression that occurs can lead to increased infections and persistently raised white cell counts. For patients who are presenting for surgery, steroid use is very important to obtain as part of their clerking history. The stress of surgery can cause hypotension at anaesthetic induction and also cardiovascular instability, a labile fluid status and poor healing in the post-operative period. It's likely that they'll require extra steroid provision to prevent this. Don't forget that patients who've been on steroids for a long period of time, typically more than three weeks at any dose, or more than a week at more than 40 milligrams prednisolone or its equivalent, must be weaned off them slowly or they may suffer an adrenal crisis. The symptoms to be aware of include hypotension, especially postural hypertension, and circulatory collapse, anorexia, nausea and vomiting with severe abdominal pain and even neurological symptoms such as confusion, which can actually progress to delirium or seizures. Patients should be given and should carry with them at all times a steroid treatment card if they're on long-term steroids to help minimise this happening. Insulin, when poorly prescribed, can be fatal, so it's really important to make sure that it's done carefully. Insulin is prescribed in units. Write this in full on any drug chart, not abbreviated to U or IU. You should never put insulin on the PRN side of the prescription cardex. If your patient is likely to need a varying dose of insulin, you can, give it, you can have a specific prescription chart for it. Don't try to fit it onto a normal one. There are several pitfalls relating to insulin prescription. One is the widely varying doses that different patients need, or even the same patient in different circumstances. There are also several different formulations of insulin with different lengths of action. They are, unusually for drugs, often referred to by their brand name rather than their generic name. All preparations must be given by injection as they're inactivated by gastrointestinal enzymes. As a rule, all insulin is given subcutaneously except for a few specific cases that I'll mention. It's important to tell the patient to rotate the sites used for subcutaneous injection to minimise the chance of localised lipodystrophy, which is the loss of subcutaneous fat. Note that if a patient is on insulin, you may need to manage this with a sliding scale if they're due to have surgery that requires them to be nil by mouth. There should be detailed guidelines on how to do this at your hospital. Follow them closely and get senior and or pharmacist support to help you with this. 
Remember that when you're using sliding scales with short-acting insulin such as Atrapid or Novarapid, it can be given by an IV infusion rather than subcutaneously. Be aware that insulin induces a net movement of potassium into cells and hypokalemia can lead to cardiac rhythm problems. So you need to make sure that you check potassium levels regularly and be ready to supplement a patient's potassium with a separate IV infusion. Finally, both renal and hepatic failure will affect the absorption and excretion of insulin and illness and stress can also change a patient's requirements. You need to be aware that the patient may need to have different levels of dosage depending on their situation. Antipsychotics are a large and complex group of medications and it's difficult to name a single one that you're more likely to come across as an F1. They all have a lot of side effects, cautions, contraindications and interactions. They could easily be a talk all to themselves. Because of this, because of their broad action on these different receptors, antipsychotic side effects are common and contribute significantly to non-adherence to therapy. They affect almost every system. In the neurological system, as well as confusion and dizziness, there are extrapyramidal effects caused by the dopamine antagonism. In the endocrine system, many antipsychotics can cause hyperprolactinemia, which can lead to sexual dysfunction. Many also cause hyperglycemia and weight gain. Cardiovascular side effects include tachycardia, arrhythmias due to acute elongation, and hypotension. These are very dangerous. Always check your patient with an ECG. In terms of side effects, one of the most worrying ones to consider, and for which all patients are monitored with at least monthly blood tests, is agranulocytosis, resulting in neutropenia. If your patient presents with this, you must stop the drug immediately and refer them to a haematologist. Additionally, while rare, neuroleptic malignant syndrome cannot be forgotten as a complication of antipsychotics. This was in the news in summer 2014, when a young Bristol woman died of it because her, pe- her doctors didn't recognise it. Associated with these side effects are the relevant diseases that means you should use antipsychotics with caution. These include cardiovascular disease, Parkinson's disease, epilepsy, depression and myasthenia gravis among others. Antipsychotics are explicitly contraindicated in comatose states, CNS depression and pheochromocytoma. They may also be relatively contraindicated in the elderly, pregnant women and those with renal or hepatic failure. A list of interactions between antipsychotics and other drugs is far too long to cover off in this presentation. Make sure you're very friendly with the drug interactions appendix in the BNF if your patient is on an antipsychotic. Finally, in terms of dosages, a useful point to remember is that the IM dose, especially if the patient is agitated, can afford to be less than the dosage that you would have given them PO, as it's not experiencing the first pass effect. Finally, we have furuzamide, also called fruzamide. This is a loop diuretic that inhibits the sodium-potassium pump in the ascending loop of Henle. It can be used for edema, especially pulmonary edema, due to left ventricular failure and in resistant hypertension. In terms of dosage, 40 mg would be a typical starting dose, and it can go up to 120 mg in the case of very resistant edema. If you're prescribing for pulmonary edema in an acute setting, 80 mg IV would be an appropriate stat dose. If you want the patient to take a regular oral dose, you need to be explicit about the times that it should be taken. Ideally, give it as a split dose, first thing in the morning at 8am, and then again soon after lunch, 2pm. It starts to work within an hour of being taken and has finished its action within 6 hours. Avoid prescribing it in the evenings for obvious reasons.
Ferrosamide's action is on the sodium-potassium pump, and this can re result in an electrolyte reduction in the bloodstream. This includes hyponatremia, hypokalemia, hypocalcemia, hypochloremia, and hypomagnesemia. Of these, hypokalemia is the most dangerous due to its effect on the heart, and patients may need to take potassium supplements. Additionally, you should look out for hypotension, particularly postural hypertension, and warn the patient about the, changes, the chances of increased urate leading to gout. Note that the elderly are particularly susceptible to side effects. New prescriptions should be started at a low dose and continuing prescriptions should be adjusted according to renal function. Finally, as a general note regarding diuretics, remember that if somebody is oliguric, it may be tempting to prescribe diuretics, but this is often the last thing you should do, as they may be underperfused and hypovolemic rather than retaining water. Make sure you always know the cause of any oliguria before commencing management. So, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation. The information found here was taken from the following ebooks: Pass the PSA by William Brown et al., Crash Course Foundation Doctor's Guide to Medicine and Surgery by Witham et al., The Hands-On Guide to Practical Prescribing by Oliver Jones and Nandan Gautam, The Pocket Prescriber by Timothy Nicholson, and, of course, the BNF website. Thank you to Dr Robert Baker, Dominic Alder and the University of Bristol, as well as the PodMedics team for support on this talk. <laughs>